Uh, I was born left-handed, and in my childhood, there was some small attempt by my well-meaning mother to make me write by urging me to try using my right hand to write or to do the chopsticks. Now, she gave up after she found out either from someone or somewhere that forcing a left-hander to use the right hand may cross some wires in the brain and make the child go mad. So today, I'm still happily a left-hander. And interestingly, today, when I sign or write a document uh, in the presence of people, occasionally I get a, wow, you are a left-hander. I heard left-handers are very smart. Now, that was certainly not a comment I hear of left-handers when I was a kid. Similarly, today, words like disruptive, out-of-the-box, pushing the envelope are used quite often in a positive sense. Disruptive technology and such may be seen as challenging, challenging the status quo and moving us toward progress. And so I wonder if we should go with the flow and spice up topics like these instead of calling it working right, which is not as exciting or as profound. Or maybe you should call it working left or working smart or how to make your money work hard for you, that sort of topic. And this brings us back to something fundamental. We as Christians increasingly need to be prepared to deal with as envelopes are pushed and out-of-the-box thinking is encouraged and even things like marriage and family is redefined. That the exhortation in Timothy to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it becomes, this exhortation becomes so much more important, especially where old beliefs and traditions are overturned or rubbished, and new beliefs emerge. It is so critical for us as God's people to ground ourselves in the truths of God, God's Word, so that it serves as a reference point for us, so that we can hear the Holy Spirit inside us saying, this is the way, walk in it, or this is not the way, stop. And indeed, for something as big as work, which we'll be talking about today, which occupies the bulk of our waking hours, now, I want to define work very broadly, be your work homemaking or baking or banking or cooking or accounting or laundry or administration or teaching, child training, music production, business, policemen, etc. We need to be consistently reminded, especially in today's world, how God views our work our vocation, and how he wants us to conduct ourselves given its centrality in our lives. Now with that as background, let's quickly read the passage for today. 
from 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, 6 to 13. I'll just read it for you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. You know, it is a fairly straightforward passage. And the first thing we want to learn today is a right view of work. How should we view work? You see, there is a command in this passage here that is pretty straightforward. It says, work. Don't be idle. Now, why is this command even necessary? We can make a few educated guess, guesses uh, from, from the background. Firstly, you may know or you may recall that a few weeks ago, um, we did the chapter before this about the end times. And in that, Paul talks about the last days. And it is likely that maybe some of these people, in understanding that the day of Jesus' return is imminent, some people decided to not work in anticipation of this return. Why work? Or work hard? Why work hard when Christ is returning soon? Now, underlying that thinking, that belief, could be that these people see a difference between the physical work that they do at their workplaces or in their schools or in their homes and the things of God. So they saw it differently. That what we're doing daily at home or in the offices or in schools has little to no relevance to our relationship with Jesus, to our eternal purpose. So if Jesus is returning next week, for sure, maybe we should all gladly resign and quit and stop doing what we have been doing and idly wait. So that could be one reason. They viewed work as something with no spiritual value. Now here's another possible reason. Sorry. Could you put the passage on again? So that's one reason. They viewed work as something with no spiritual value. But here's another possible reason. Um, they were very under the influence of um, the ancient Greeks, the, the, the philosophies around it. And the ancient Greeks considered work a curse. You may have heard of Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher. He considered unemployment, uh, which he defined as the ability to live without having to work. Aristotle considered unemployment a crucial qualification to a truly worthwhile life. 
So he considered that that was, that was important if you want to have a worthwhile life. No work. Because no work frees the mind to contemplate deep philosophies. It frees you uh, to think about stuff. So it was a worldview of work prevalent at that time amongst these people that the whole idea of work uh, is to quickly make your keep or sponge off others so that you can retire early and think about stuff. So that could be another reason. They view work as a curse, something to work yourself out of and uh, longing for liberation from work. And given many of these Christians were possibly manual laborers working with their hands, which involved hard work, it was probably easier to consider work as hard and therefore cursed. Now let's see how Paul responds. Paul says this, and we read, We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, etc., etc. And he said it more than once. In 1 Thessalonians, the first letter to these people, obviously these people had an issue with this, right, uh, uh, regarding work. And he said in the first letter to them, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, almost the same, same way it's written, so that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So most likely this toiling, this day and night, was Paul working at tent-making. That, that was his, his, his life skill. I mean, Paul was good at many things. One of the things he was good at was making tents, uh, working with his hands. So he was literally moonlighting to earn his keep as he preached the gospel and as he discipled the church. So if someone had the reason to separate spiritual work um, from physical or secular or worldly work, it must have been Paul, right? Because he was, what could be more spiritual than preaching the gospel? What could be more spiritual than discipling? And what did something as earthly and as mundane as making a tent have to do with the spiritual life? Not for Paul. Paul clearly saw his earthly work of making tents as part of his spiritual work as an extension of spiritual work. I I believe Paul saw it all as the work that God has called him to do. The tent making and the preaching of the gospel. Now if you imagine Paul was a painter and he's using a piece of canvas to draw his artwork. So there's one artwork called the preaching of the gospel art. So he's drawing that, the preaching of the gospel spiritual work. He, he's drawing that. What I want to share with you is that for Paul, there was another piece of art called tent making, the tent making art. And for Paul, it's the same piece of canvas. It is the same piece of canvas. It is not a separate piece of work. To him, it was continuing. The tent making and the discipling was part and parcel of the spiritual life to which God called him. Now, to be sure, Paul as a missionary and pastor, because before you start beating up our missionaries and pastors and ask them to make tents, um, to be sure, Paul as a missionary and pastor had the right to focus on his spiritual work, on his work, and let others support him. But he evidently found it so important to teach the people that 
physical, secular work is important, work has value and relevance to a Christian's walk. That work is the productive means of unlocking God's provision. He saw all that and he saw it necessary to not just tell them that, but Paul saw it necessary to model it for them. That through his tent making, he was setting them an example in spiritual living. That our work is part of our spiritual life. Now that's just Paul. Let's talk about another example. This is in Timothy, and they were having a problem with, um, and I'm having a problem with this stand. They were having a problem. <laughs> Why is everything so low today? Let me just fix something. I don't know how to fix this. Let me give, this was a, another example where they had an issue with the widows in the church because the widows were, were, could not work and they had to, um, the church had to support them. And this was the context uh, then. And Paul says in 1 Timothy that if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show what? To show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now you see godliness in that verse? Now, is that not a very spiritual word? It is a very spiritual word, right? Godliness is, is as spiritual as you can get. But in this instance, it actually works now actually. But in this instance, it equals, godliness equals providing for the needy in our family. Something as basic as that, that same concept of working to provide. Now if you read 1 Timothy 5, the next verse says that if a widow does not have family to support her uh, and is left all alone, she will put her hope all her hope in God and pray day and night for help. So again, you see no difference in the spiritual between widows who are supported by family members, presumably secular work, and widows relying on God directly. It is all a means of God providing. So I want to suggest to you that work is God's designated productive means of provision. It is seen as godly. It is not a curse. It is not something to work ourselves out of. As a means, it is a means to godliness, the same piece of canvas on which we draw our spiritual life and our spiritual art. There is that halo of godliness around work when it is done to provide for those who are weak. It is a sacred trust. Our work is a sacred trust, be it form filling or laundry or banking or lawyering or taking care of a kid. It is a sacred trust. It is something God entrusts to us and it is through it that we display godliness. 
What about us? Does the banking job I return to tomorrow, the form filling you return to or we return to, the meetings, the classes, do these have any value to God? Now, it's hard to imagine a halo over it, but I would say very much so there is value in what we do from Monday to Friday, or for some people, even Saturday. It is an extension of the work God has called us to do. At the very least, it is a means for me to provide resources to meet needs. And like Paul, my work is also a model to the people around me. Remember Paul saying, I do it not just to provide for my own needs, so no, I'm not a burden to you. I do it for, for you to follow as a pattern. I'm modeling it for you. And in the same way, our work is a model to the people around us. It speaks. Your work has a voice. Mine and your work is a platform for us to practice and display godliness. It is the largest and most obvious platform for me to steward the resources God has given me. Now, you know the parable of the talents, right? The parable of the talents, some people got, got what? Got five, got two, got one. And I cannot imagine that when Jesus was telling that parable of the talents, it relates only to my service on Sunday. Cannot be. It cannot even just relate to my two hours of CG on a Friday. Cannot be. It is much of my life. And what, what is much of my life? And what is much of your life? Work. And I believe that one day when I stand before Jesus and you stand before Jesus, it cannot be just a weekly accounting on Sunday. That, Vincent, let me talk about Sunday and the second Sunday and the third Sunday. I cannot be. It has to be, how did you steward the resources I gave to you? How did you model my likeness Monday to Sunday? It has to be. You know, I once had a chat with a friend and this person was not a, a, a scholar and apparently in the organization that he worked with, there were scholars. And, and this person was lamenting that scholars get a leg up. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying I agree or disagree because I know there are scholars here, but um, you know, lamenting that scholars get a leg up, uh, they therefore rise up much faster, get better promotion prospects, and that was when I turned to him and I told him, hey, wh why should that be? Um, can't you work as hard or, or better to pip the scholar, to, to beat him? And that was when this person turned to me and said, you know what, it is not that I don't want to, but in such things in my organization, it is all about the opportunity granted. Right? If they grant me an opportunity to work on a decent project, the sort of projects that they always grant to scholars, then will I have that chance to ace it and prove myself? But alas, well, for him, he says no chance. He is not given that opportunity. Now, I'm not, I'm not about to wade into that minefield of scholar versus non-scholar on this pulpit. Right? I, I'm just using that. I just wanted to pick up on a point that he mentioned, that it is about opportunity granted the opportunity that is given to us. You know, the work that we have uh, is an opportunity that God has given to us, a platform, a canvas on which we present our worship to God. 
by stewarding, by employing, by harnessing the resources He has given us. Not just talents. Not just talents. It can be talents. It can be stewarding the time. It can be stewarding the strength. And there is a sovereignty of God over our work. You see this verse here in 1 Corinthians 7? It says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And I think it would be remiss of us to think that the life to which God has called us excludes our work. I think it would be very cheeky of us to say that the life to which God has called us is these two hours on a Sunday. Cannot be. The life to which God has assigned you, the life to which God has called you, it includes our work. And the Latin root word for vocation, work, is vocatio. That's what I read in Wikipedia anyway. And it is a call. It is a summons. It is a calling. And today you and I need to think about how we are painting on this big canvas called work. Are we productive? Are we providing? And are we proclaiming, showcasing God's attributes? A couple of weeks back, I was confronted with a situation at work where I was accused of bullying a junior whom I thought was insubordinate. And much as I was vindicated, um, I, I was absolved of the crime, um, I felt God wanted me to have a coffee with this uh, junior person to clear the air. That I intended no malice and that I certainly was not intending to bully him. You know, if I see my job as separate from the spiritual, that this is just a temporal thing that I just got to get it over with and done with, that it has no value nor bearing on what matters to God, then I would do what most people do. I will move on because I was absolved, I was vindicated, um, his charges didn't hold. I will move on and sweep it under the carpet, right? I'll probably not, 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 not try to look at him or, or see him or, or whatever. But because, I'm just sharing this, I'm not bragging, uh, by the way. I'm just sharing this. But because I saw my work as a calling from God, I need to see it as that canvas where God called me to produce, to provide, to proclaim. Now, I, called, I had that coffee with him um, to break the animosity. It was humbling for me. I just wanted to share that with you that we, we need to see our work as a continuum of what God has called us to. Not, not just the, the, the worship, the CG ministry, the Bible study. It is a continuum of what He has called us, called us to. Now some of the people who have moved me seriously, moved me seriously, impressed me, and earned my respect in work were non-Christians. Their integrity their hard work, their willingness to admit a mistake, their willingness to take one for the team, 
to slow down to help the less important people. These people moved me. And they did not impress me by the bigness of their deals. Because uh, that doesn't impress me. Nor the importance of their job or their rank. They impressed me, and I believe they will impress you too, by the strength of their character. The strength of character they brought to whatever job they were doing. So I want, I want to share with you that I'm not talking about overtly spiritual things like preaching in the workplace or having a prayer meeting at the office. These are great. But it is more than that. It is about the virtues you bring to a job. The paint you bring to the canvas. And I want to encourage you that our God is an expert at using small things and seemingly foolish things. It is, his track record is very consistent in using small things and foolish things. So don't despise the small beginnings or the small things that God calls you to um, as even when you're listening to His Word and as you determine to do something at work. God can move people through you without you speaking. You know that, right? This one, is, it says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. So in case the men say this only applies to ladies. It says, Make it your goal to lead a quiet life, minding your own business. Sorry, the verse at the bottom etc., etc., then people who are not believers will respect the way you what? Talk. Will respect the way you live. Quietly, minding your own business, doing your work. People respect you for that. And you know, if you have been around long enough, that respect is a bridge to many things. Now, I know work is not easy. But those, who are, those of us who are parents, or even if you are not parents, you know this, that when the going is tough uh, for the kid, and the kid still takes the effort, uh, it becomes extra special, correct not? I mean, if your kid is a natural and he's acing everything, then he does it. It's, it's, it's still good, right? Uh, all of us wish for kids like that. But you know, when, when, when the kid is struggling, but still he's putting in the effort, oh, it warms your heart. I don't know if it warms your heart or not, it warms my heart. And I believe the same with God. I believe that when God sees us struggling at work, not only does He promise to work in us, through us, and energize us, but I believe it warms His heart that we are taking that effort. I hope this repurposes you. This re-energizes you. For those of you who have been disillusioned by work, who think that work is a curse, it is something from hell, and, and it is something that you want to work yourselves out of. I want to... I hope this repurposes you. This re-energizes you. Let's move on to our concluding idea. Not only a right view of work, but a right view of ambition. Because you can't talk about work without talking about ambition, aspiration. Now, if you look at verse 11 in your Bibles, it, it, it says this. Let me read this to you for the sake of time. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Now such people we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work quietly. 
and earn their own food and other necessities. There's something interesting here about working quietly. And it's not the first time Paul says this. It says, he says in 1 Thessalonians as well, make it your goal to live a quiet life. Mind your own business, work with your hands. It is an interesting one because quiet is not a usual term we associate with goals and ambitions. At least not in the, 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 the place I work in. That goals and ambitions are usually loud and aggressive and assertive and, and, and etc., etc. The quiet referred to here is not silent, as in the quiet, the silent. The quiet referred to here is restfulness, undisturbed, settled, assentedness. The opposite is not so much noisy as disorderly. So the opposite of this quiet is a disorderly situation. And I just want to pick on the two of these words here, which is settled and centeredness. You know, it gives you a... I don't know what, what impression it gives you when I say something is settled and is centered, but it gives me an impression of weight. You know, you know weight? A low center of gravity that will protect the person from being tossed and turned by every worry and fretting and false teaching. That, that's what I believe that quiet here, the centered, the settled here means. It is working, but not out of an insecurity. I want to share with you, I, I may have shared with you before, that my favorite Chinese restaurant, uh, and I highly recommend it, is Jade Palace. I don't know how many of you know that. Jade Palace in the Forum Galleria. Of course, the food has to be good. The food is good. But the thing that impresses me most about Jade Palace is the boss. Um, and because I'm into, into wine, um, this is a restaurant that would not charge me corkage, which is, which is the extra charge they usually charge you, when you bring your own wine. And he himself carries an impressive array of wine that he sells at almost the same price that I buy outside. So he doesn't mark up his wines like other restaurants. And I have a habit of over-ordering. My wife hates it, but I always do it. And he will always tell me when I over-order, he will say, three dishes enough, not enough, order some more, okay? And it's very unlike every other restaurant I go to that is very keen to push me, they are special. And this person, yes, he's busy. Of course he's busy. His restaurant is always fully booked. But you don't sense a franticness to make money or to advance or whatever. I, I think as far as I know, he only has one. He doesn't have a branch. He doesn't have a chain of Crystal Jade. Uh, not, not Crystal Jade, sorry. Jade Palace. Now he appears to genuinely like peop seeing people enjoy a good meal and a nice bottle of wine. I don't know why. Maybe he has made enough. Maybe this is his hobby, uh, etc. But there is a centeredness, a settledness, a stability to this guy that impresses me, that seems to come from some internal reserve. And it shows in his work in a beautiful way that there's no insecurity, there's no calculativeness, there's no kanchongness, right? The franticness. He seems to work for something outside of the usual that we see people work for. Now, if you're not very comfortable with this guy, uh, I give you another example, the Lord Jesus Christ. Another such example. Busy, but not frantic. 
There is an inner core in our Lord that is very settled, very centered, very steady. And His centeredness, we know why, right? I attribute it to the weight that grounds Him down. What, 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 does, what is that weight that holds down our Lord? It's two things. The purpose of God and His identity in God. These two things steady Jesus. His purpose, the purpose of God on His life and His identity as the Son of God. He constantly returns to that center, we notice. Even on the eve of His crucifixion, He returns to that center in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was what helped Him to lead that centered life. And interestingly, Paul tells us, you want ambition? You want to aspire? You want to have an aim in life? Make it your goal. Aspire to live a quiet life, a steady life, a centered life, minding your own business and working with your hands. Much as these are three different things, quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands, I believe they are related as one goal, one ambition. Because it is about cultivating that inner core, keep returning to that center, growing that weight in our inner man, and then minding our own business so that we don't get bogged down comparing ourselves to other people and, and getting distracted by the affairs of others. And then working with our hands. That which occupies our time, that which is a practical outworking of what God has called us to do. It's not just all talk. It is working it out. Painting on the canvas. And why is that a worthy ambition? Because Jesus is our hope. You know, not our work. Jesus is our hope. Our work is not our hope. And He came to make things right. And work is something beautiful, but with the fall, it became something ugly. Jesus has come to redeem that. And I believe He continues to redeem it through us. So Jesus is our... Make, make, it, make it that worthy ambition. I'll just ask the musicians to come up. Um, and if we can all rise. And much as I know... Uh, that it is later than usual. I, wanna, I want to challenge this congregation. Right? We're, among, we're among family. This is not a seminar. I'm not your lecturer. Uh, we are we're family. We're friends. And you know, because this is a, this is a congregation, and I say as a, as a compliment, eh? this is the congregation that is more mature. More mature. Eh? Uh, and you know, there's a story of Caleb. There's a story of Caleb when he was 85 years old coming to Joshua and saying, give me this mountain. I'm as strong as I was when I was 40 and God who helped me is still my help. And I'll tell you, a few of us have been praying that if you look at the Singapore church today, I mean, like Singapore, it is aging. We will have more and more mature people, uh, at least in age. And you know, we have been praying that, Lord, you raise the young to be Joseph's and Daniel's. That you will raise up Joseph's and Daniel's from amongst the young. We also want to pray uh, that, God, you raise Caleb's. You know. 85 year old, sir. Uh, and, and, and don't believe this, 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 this thing about autumn years from Benny. Uh, 
you are at the prime of your life. 85 years old, um, just raring to go uh, and seeing purpose in work, however you define it. Right? Seeing purpose that the day, as long as I have breath, there is a contribution, there is productiveness, there is a productiveness to provide and there is a productiveness to proclaim the goodness of God. So if, if, if that resonates with you as we sing this song, I want you to, I want you to come forward. Uh, you don't have to be old to come forward, okay? If, if the message resonates with you, you come forward. But especially for, for the older one who say, Lord, yeah, I, I'm, I'm usually thinking about retiring and thinking of bringing another, but I want to be a Caleb. Right? Because the church needs that. The church needs the older to mentor the younger. And your wealth of experience, etc. I talk too much, but you know what I mean. So as we sing that song, uh, if that resonates with you, come forward. Those of you who have to leave, leave quietly. Uh, and uh, let, let's do that. Let's do that song.
just say a closing prayer for all of us. If you want to be prayed for, stay in front. I want to pray with you. Uh, but we want to respect the time of others. So let's just, let's just close in prayer. And you, you say a prayer to the Lord first. Just rededicating the work to which God has called you. Rededicating back to Him. Father God, we praise you. We thank you because, Lord, you are all wise. And we know you want us to partake in the joy of producing, in the joy of creating, in the joy of sowing in order to reap. You have been so kind to us to bless us Lord, with that opportunity. For those of us who are able, Lord, I pray that, Lord, you will help us to indeed teach, to, to indeed treat our work as a vocation, as a calling, as that platform, that sacred trust, the endowment you place in us to produce, to provide, to proclaim, Lord. I want to pray for a steely kind of resolve, Lord, for our people to for us to gun for a quiet life, to be ambitious, to lead a centered life, a settled life, a life that minds its own business and that works with its hands, but is is so is so centered in you, Lord. I want to pray that Lord, you give us the ability to engage with one another, not in a busy body way, but in an encouraging way. That, Lord, as we engage one another, you will spur us on to walk love and good works. That, Lord, in our sieges, we will be stirring up one another to be relevant, to be blessings, Lord, in our workplace. So, Lord, we lay our work before you the next week. Bless it, Lord. May it bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.